hi, this is Billy Crone of Get A Life Ministries, and I wanted to thank you for joining us for Attack of the Drones, Skynet is coming. In fact, we're going to see Skynet is coming as much closer than uh, what I think many of us are even prepared to believe. And uh, we're outside here today at Creech Air Force Base, just outside of Las Vegas, Nevada. And uh, believe it or not, it's one of the hot spots for drone technology around the world, and certainly for the U.S. military. And I think as long as we stay over here, uh, we're going to be okay. Uh, in fact, uh, whatever you do, if you happen to drive through here, make sure you obey the speed limit and uh, maybe don't look too suspicious, uh, otherwise you're going to get pulled over uh, like these other folks, okay? Uh, but it, one thing I've noticed when you drive through this community, it's very unassuming. Uh, you might be thinking that uh, there's not much really going on here. Uh, you, there's a lot of dilapidated buildings, a lot of closed up buildings, and it's not a very uh, big community. It's out in the middle of the desert. and you might come through here and think that, well, there's nothing much going on. In fact, you might blink and pass the whole thing. But believe it or not, it's what's going on over there and many other places like it around the world is what concerns me and why we're doing this documentary uh, today. And I think once we're done with this documentary, you too are going to become greatly concerned as well. But as you heard with the title, we're not just talking about drones, but specifically Skynet and artificial intelligence taking over the whole drone system. And for those of you who are not familiar with this term, Skynet, uh, it's the term that was used to describe the artificial intelligence system that went out of control in the Terminator movies. In fact, let's get reacquainted with that scenario. Skynet was a fictional computer system developed for the U.S. military in the Terminator movies and was supposed to function as a global defense network that would have command over all computerized military hardware, systems, planes, bombers, and of course, the entire arsenal of nuclear weapons. The premise was that Skynet would remove the possibility of human error, as well as the slow reaction time to guarantee a fast, efficient response to enemy attack, and of course, protect us from the dreaded cyber attacks. But the problem was Skynet began to learn at a geometric rate, and it actually gained self-awareness. In other words, it became artificial intelligence. It then tricked humanity into giving it full control of the global computer system via a false cyber attack, and realizing this a little too late, the operators of Skynet panicked, realizing the extent of its abilities, trying to deactivate it, but failed. So Skynet obviously perceived this attack as a threat and came to the conclusion that all of humanity would attempt to destroy it. Therefore, to defend itself against humanity, Skynet launched nuclear missiles under its command at Russia, which then, of course, responded with a nuclear counterattack, and the world went up in smoke, basically. This event was labeled as Judgment Day. Following Judgment Day, Skynet used its mechanized robots to track down, collect, and or kill any remaining human survivors, which is what the Terminator movies are all about. Repeated attempts at the last human survivors going back in time to try to stop this event, this so-called Judgment Day, with Skynet and its machines in hot pursuit with their own countermeasures going back into time to stop humanity from stopping them. Now, the reason why I'm bringing up this whole Skynet scenario uh, in the Terminator movies, as you just saw, is to tell you, believe it or not, uh, this Skynet premise is about to become our modern-day reality. Hollywood, whether we realize it or not, folks, has done a fantastic job preparing us for this future that is coming. In fact, it's a future that's going to be thrust upon us much sooner than any of us uh, even realize. 
And believe it or not, not only does that movie speak of a judgment day, but of all places, so does the Bible. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the Bible warned us of a real live judgment day, and it's not make-believe, it's not computer animated, and it really is coming to our planet. Uh, in fact, Jesus said of this time frame, it is going to be the worst time in the history of mankind, just like the Terminator movie presupposes. And so my question to you is this, could this drone technology, uh, could this Skynet system that, as we're going to see, is really being built before our very eyes, uh, could it be a part of this horrible system, a judgment day, that the Bible warned would come to our planet nearly 2,000 years ago? Well, before you answer that, let's take a look at what the Bible says about this event. Matthew 24, verses 3, 6-7, 21. As Jesus was sitting in the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will all this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Revelation 6, 8 I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades followed close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Revelation 9, 15-16 and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. And maybe it's just me, but when you take a look at that biblical text, uh, it doesn't sound like a very good time. Uh, in fact, if you're paying attention there, if you take into account just those two last judgments that were mentioned there, you get the picture as to why Jesus said this is really going to be the worst time in the history of mankind. One-fourth of our planet really is going to be annihilated, apparently, by a global war. And then later, another one-third of our planet is going to get annihilated after that. And so if you do the math and take a look at uh, the population rate for today, uh, you're going to see that's about three and a half billion, not million, three and a half billion people all in one fell swoop. And so it's pretty obvious, no wonder why Jesus says, you don't want uh, to be there. But the question is, do we have the technology right now on the planet? Do we have the means right now to annihilate literally one half of our planet in a relatively short amount of time, just like the book of Revelation uh, tells us in those passages? Well, as you're gonna see folks, unfortunately, believe it or not, the answer is yes. And I'm not talking about annihilating the planet with nuclear warfare. Okay, believe it or not, folks, with this rise of drone technology and artificial intelligence that's being built, again, as we're going to see right before our very eyes as you watch this documentary, okay, it is preparing the way for a real live judgment day upon this planet. Skynet, in other words, really is coming. It's not a movie anymore. It's our reality. And believe it or not, folks, it's being prepared and has been prepared for us for quite some time. So let's take a look at the history of drone technology. And you tell me, folks, how close we're getting to this horrible event that is about to unfold on our planet that the Bible warned about nearly 2,000 years ago. Let's take a look at that.
Perhaps the most well-known drone today is called the Predator. It has a wingspan of 55 feet. It's 27 feet long. It can reach speeds up to 135 miles an hour. It was designed to provide continual intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance information, as well as a kill capability. As one researcher stated, its deathly name conjures up images of a science fiction dystopia where robots hover in the sky and exterminate humans on the ground. Of course, this is no longer science fiction. Today, drone operators sit in air-conditioned cubicles as they literally control a fleet of aerial robots that to date have killed thousands of people incognito from the sky. But this desire to monitor others from the sky with lethal capacity has been going on for quite some time. One of the first reported usages of drones was by the Austrians in 1849. They launched some 200 pilotless balloons mounted with bombs against the city of Venice. Then, 13 years later, balloons were flown by both the Confederate and Union forces during the Civil War for reconnaissance and bombing raids as well. Over 20 years later, during the Spanish-American War, the U.S. military fitted a camera to a kite to produce the very first aerial reconnaissance photos. Then in World War I, aerial surveillance was used on a regular basis with devices called stereoscopes to hunt for visual clues about enemy movements on photos that were stitched together to form a mosaic map. This technology did away with the horse as the main means of military reconnaissance. Then in the early 20th century, we saw the birth of what was called dumb drones to test and train combat pilots as well as anti-aircraft gunners. From here, drones split into three categories. Target drones, sensor drones, and weaponized drones. With the birth of radio technology, we finally had the ability to make these drones literally remote-controlled. Nikola Tesla first demonstrated the remote control of vehicles at the end of the 19th century. On a pond in Madison Square Garden in 1898, he remotely controlled a boat with a radio signal, and it was his patents that helped produce modern-day robotics. In fact, Tesla's stated original use for this technology was for the remote control machines and weapons to be used by the military to end all wars. Then in 1917, two guys from the United States, Elmer Sperry and Peter Hewitt, constructed a radio-controlled airplane called the Hewitt-Sperry Automatic Airplane, or the Flying Bomb. The automatic airplane was able to fly 50 miles carrying a 300-pound bomb after being launched from a catapult. The success of this project led the U.S. Army to commission a second project called the Kettering Aerial Torpedo Bug. It was essentially a flightless aerial torpedo guided by preset controls. After a predetermined length of time, a control closed an electronic circuit, which shut off the engine. Then the wings were released, causing the bug to plunge to earth, whereupon its 180 pounds of explosives detonated on impact. Then at the same time, Germany got into the action and created the Siemens Torpedo Glider, which was a missile that could be dropped from a Zeppelin that could be guided to a target by radio as well. All of these were precursors to today's modern guided cruise missiles. But it wasn't until the late 1930s that we saw a rush of military interest in the remote-controlled vehicles. Soon we had the BAT, a radio-controlled glide bomb that was used towards the end of World War II, and the British Queen Bee, or WASP, that was first used for firing practice. Then in the 1940s, the glide bomb, or GB-1, was developed to bypass German air defenses. 
It was a glider fitted with a standard 1,000 or 2,000 pound bomb that was controlled by radio after being dropped from a B-17 and then guided to its target below. In fact, in 1943, 108 GBM-1s were dropped on Cologne, causing heavy damage. Later in the same year came the GB-4, or the Robin, which was the first television-guided weapon. Although it was potentially revolutionary, its crude image could only function in the best atmospheric conditions. Then the English decided to do this with full-blown planes, a project known as Operation Aphrodite was concocted that would strike German laboratories with American B-17 flying fortresses and B-24 bombers that were stripped down and crammed with explosives. A manned crew would pilot these planes before parachuting out once they crossed the English Channel. At this moment, a nearby mothership would then take control, receiving live feed from the onboard television camera. And even though Operation Aphrodite was not very successful, it was the pressure of the Germans making great strides with the V-1 and V-2 missiles, as well as the catastrophic loss of life with manned aerial vehicles that accelerated the rush for better functioning unmanned projects. Around 40,000 U.S. aircraft were lost in World War II together with 80,000 crew members. This became the financial and human drive towards a robotic air force. It was cheaper and a safer way to fight a war. So in 1946, a special pilotless aircraft branch of the U.S. Air Force was established to develop three types of drones for use as training targets. Of the three, the airborne-launched Q-2 or Fire Bee was the most important, becoming the father of a class of target drones built by the Ryan Aeronautical Company. They were first tested in 1951 at Holloman Air Force Base and could stay in flight for two hours, capable of reaching heights of up to 60,000 feet. Soon fire bees, or lightning bugs as they were called, were launched from the wings of a Hercules airplane which acted as a mothership for its swarm of drones. These drones flew pre-programmed routes and were controlled by the airborne remote control officers on board the Hercules. After performing their surveillance mission, the lightning bugs deployed their parachutes and were scooped up by helicopters under the guidance of drone recovery officers. In 1960, Gary Powers was shot down over the Soviet Union while piloting a U-2 spy plane, so the Eisenhower administration scrambled to replace its manned reconnaissance program. Once again, the Ryan Aeronautical Company, now acquired by Teledyne Incorporated, jumped to the rescue. They proposed a version of its target drone called the Red Wagon as a reconnaissance vehicle. Then in 1964, the U.S. began to consider sending drones to replace its U-2s in spying missions over Cuba and soon put the idea into action. Lightning bugs flown by the U.S. Strategic Air Command were used for surveillance in so-called denied areas, including Cuba, North Korea, and China. In fact, in November 1964, the Washington Daily News reported that Communist China claimed to have shot down a U.S. reconnaissance plane with no pilot. Lightning bugs were not only used widely over North Vietnam, but the electronic battlefield of Vietnam marked a turning point of drone warfare. The robotic eyes in the skies were successful, 
For instance, between 1964 and 1975, more than 1,000 lightning bugs flew over 34,000 surveillance missions across Southeast Asia. In fact, many of the aerial views of North Vietnam that appeared in American press were taken by the drones. They were also being trialed as electronic listening devices. In short, because of the success as the Vietnam War was winding down, the robots were gearing up. Then in 1970, at a symposium sponsored by the Air Force and the RAND Corporation, the drone revolution was kick-started even further. It was decided that the time was ripe for remotely piloted vehicles, or RPVs. Boeing and Ryan developed high-altitude, long-endurance drones and were capable of flying for over 24 hours and piloted from the ground. At the same time, these pilotless drones got bigger, more like the U-2s they were replacing. A range of mini RPVs were developed as well, such as the Prieri, which was capable of carrying laser designators and TV cameras. Then in 1973, Philco Ford Corporation developed a laser designator that could be attached to a fire bee with the aim of creating a strike drone. In fact, through the 1970s, there was talk of ending the era of human pilot, especially when a human pilot was actually defeated by a drone in a test. The F-4 Phantom and its pilot could not keep place with inhuman twists and turns that the robot was pulling. Then in the 1980s, drone technology was passed on to Israel, who used pioneer drones in the early 80s against Syrian forces. Then an Israeli engineer called Abraham Karim migrated to Los Angeles, where he built a cigar-looking aircraft called the Albatross that would change the face of warfare forever. It could stay in the air for 56 hours as opposed to the drones used in the Vietnam War that could only stay in the air for around two hours. Due to this radical improvement, he began receiving funding from DARPA, the military's research and development department. With this new influx of seed money, Kareem's company, Leading Systems Incorporated, created the drones Amber and its successor, the GNAT. It was equipped with GPS navigation that allowed for autonomous missions for up to two days at a time. Then in the 1990s, the U.S. Congress effectively killed off the UAV development, including Amber and the GNAT. So Kareem sold his company to Hughes Aircraft, which in turn sold it to General Atomics, which assimilated Kareem's team. Then, because of the urgent need for surveillance during the Bosnian War, which saw around 100,000 people killed, tens of thousands of women raped, and millions more displaced, the GNAT drone was utilized again. However, it was vulnerable to inclement weather and could only be controlled from a relatively close proximity, restricting its surveillance capabilities. This is where General Atomics responded with the Predator. Now with satellite communications, American drone operators didn't even have to be in the same region, let alone the same continent as the drone. The Predator drones were first flown in June 1994, and future developments included de-icing systems, reinforced wings, and a laser-guided targeting system that proved essential for its later weaponization. Impressed with the Predator's capabilities, the U.S. Air Force soon established its very first UAV squadron in Indian Springs, Nevada, later named Creech Air Force Base in 2005. Then after a Predator drone spotted what it believed to be Osama bin Laden at Tarnak Farm in Afghanistan, the call went out to shorten the time it took to take a target out. Previously, Tomahawk missiles would fly from a submarine in the Arabian Sea to southern Afghanistan, and it would take about six hours to go through the military protocols. But if the Predators were equipped with Hellfire missiles, then the response time could be 
immediate. And here is where the hunter became a killer. To this day, Creech Air Force Base remains the current hub of American drone operations in Afghanistan. Soon the fateful day came when the armed predator program was activated days after the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001. Then President Bush signed a directive that created a secret list of high-value targets, or HVTs, that the CIA was authorized to kill without further presidential approval. 9-11 officially ended any worries that the Predator program would be shut down. Then in 2008, former CIA Director Michael Hayden successfully lobbied the Bush administration to relax drone targeting constraints. Now a named target on a kill list was no longer a legal prerequisite to attack. Instead, the CIA could now target individuals based on their pattern of life or their suspicious daily behavior. These signature strikes, as they were called, were also re-signed by Obama in 2009. And today, the CIA oversees a program of extrajudicial killings and geographic surveillance across the planet. In Pakistan, in Somalia, in Yemen, in Libya, in Iran, and beyond. Furthermore, its global reach shows no sign of shrinking. In fact, at the time of this documentary research, there has been a total of 5,884 people killed by drone strikes. But again, that's just what has been reported. The first invasion of drones coming to the planet is in the private sector. You see, outside the military invasion of drones, the other area that most people are familiar with drone technology is actually in the private sector whether it's a modern-day hobbyist or amateur filmmaker or just a dad showing off his latest trinket with his son. Personal drones are now exploding on the scene. In fact, let's start off by taking a look at the different types of consumer drones out there to get your hands on. Let's take a look at that. You might not get to blow things up in RL like the U.S. military does with their unmanned aircraft, but if simply flying things around for the fun of it sounds good to you, you may just want to look into picking up a consumer drone, a product category that has enjoyed a huge surge in popularity recently. But what exactly is a drone? How exactly do drones work and what do you need to know before taking off? We'll start by fixing your terminology. Although the words are often used interchangeably, most of the drones that you see on the market are actually just quadcopters. And as that name suggests, that means that they have four spinning rotors arranged in a square or diamond pattern. Now quadcopters work by varying how fast each individual rotor is spinning. So if all the blades are spinning at the same speed, then it'll either go straight up or down or just hang in the air in one spot. But when some of the blades are told by an onboard controller to rotate faster than others, it can cause the drone or quad to dive, bank, strafe, or even do stunts, like flips. But while most drones function fairly similarly due to the actual physics of the usual four-rotor arrangement, they certainly aren't all created equal. And you can get anything from tiny, low-powered quads for beginners for under $50 to heavy-duty drones with powerful batteries and crystal-clear cameras that will run you over $1,000 and could probably take over Luxembourg if you had enough of them. But let's say that that's not your goal, or I mean, who knows, maybe it is. How do you show 
shop for a drone? What exactly should you be looking for? That all depends on what capabilities you require, your flying and technical skills, and of course, your budget. There are plenty of ready-to-fly or RTF drones that come fully assembled and include a handheld remote transmitter. Just charge up the battery and you're pretty much ready to rock. Cheaper models will typically not fly as long on a single charge thanks to their low capacity batteries with some lasting as little as five minutes or so and usually feature very low quality cameras if they have one at all. As you go up the price ladder you'll find drones that can fly around half an hour on just a single charge with cameras that can capture great looking stabilized HD video. Other features might include longer range, the ability to mount your own camera with GoPros being a popular choice but some even accepting popular DSLR cameras, the ability to live stream video directly to a smartphone or tablet for first person control, or even the ability to use the aforementioned tablet or other device to control the drone's flight. But pre-built aren't for everyone and if you're a tinkerer the drone hobbyist community might be what you are after there are a number of build-it-yourself drone kits available in many different price ranges as well as individual parts that you can buy such as high capacity batteries advanced remote transmitters and even autopilots that turn a quadcopter into an actual bonafide self-piloting drone also as you become more and more experienced you may even want to try out different flight controllers these are the pcbs that that control the rotors, kind of like a drone's motherboard, that respond differently to control inputs, um, with some sort of more specialized for smooth flying and thus capturing prettier videos, while others might be a bit more challenging to fly, but will allow you to pull off much more impressive maneuvers. So if you're interested in going the DIY route, there's a lot of information available on selecting parts for your particular skill level and needs. But before you jump into it, remember that just like anything else that's fun, there are some rules you have to follow. Both the American and Canadian governments have outlined regulations for flying drones for fun, as they are technically aircraft. These include, but are not limited to, not flying too close to airports, getting the proper certifications if your drone is over a certain weight or size limit, or if you're flying for commercial gain, keeping your drone within sight, not flying near an actual plane, for what we hope are obvious reasons, and this should go without saying, not using your drone to spy on your attractive neighbor or to harass that troll who told you to fight me IRL. Besides, if drone owners start misbehaving too much, how will the drone industry ever get to the point where we get things like quadcopter pizza delivery? Which would be awesome. Mmm, drone pizza. Boy, wouldn't that be great? Actually, it's already here. And uh, believe it or not, that's still the tip of the iceberg. You can only get drones that fly in the air, as you just saw, but you can actually get ones that fly along the ground. In fact, let's take a look at these made from Parrot. Discover the Parrot Mini Drones, the award-winning connected robots. Roll and jump anywhere with Parrot Jumping Sumo. Roll and fly anywhere with Parrot Rolling Spider. Buy yours now before they all fly away or crawl away. But as you can see, air, ground, I mean, what's next? Drones are everywhere. It's actually kind of funny that you should ask that. You see, even for you water enthusiasts, uh, believe it or not, your wish is their command. You can now even get your very own water drone thanks to these guys. Let's take a look at what they came up with. Eric Stackpole and David Lang are two young entrepreneurs looking to become the next Jacques Cousteau. 
Jacques Cousteau changed the way ocean exploration was done. He invited people to, to explore along with him. So for us, it's the same thing. They're working on an underwater robotic submarine that anyone can own and use. Priced at less than $1,000, it would give amateur explorers Cousteau-like access. This is the open ROV. ROV stands for remotely operated vehicle. I can put this in the water and fly it around and it's got a video camera on it so you can see what it sees live. Users build the ROVs themselves and are encouraged to submit new designs and ideas. Open ROV is an open source community. If the ROV is having some sort of a problem and we can't figure out how to handle it, I could go onto the forums and as I sleep, the problem's going across Europe. By the end of lunch, I could have five or six good solutions making it easier for the ever-changing ROV to go into more uncharted waters. People often ask us, is it something that's just kind of a toy that can, that's fun to build and play with, or is it something that you expect to be used by real researchers? And our answer certainly is both. We hear from people all the time, conservation organizations, who want to go in and find and check on invasive species, fish and game groups, teachers who want to get these things into classrooms, and we're excited about all of them. And if you're a water enthusiast, you should be too. But as you can see, there is no place that these things are not going to be flying, crawling, swimming around, you name it. But you might be thinking, well, well wait a second, that's just these hobbyists and computer gurus who are, who are into that sort of thing. I'll have no personal use for drones. Really? Well, everybody loves taking selfies, right? Now, believe it or not, you can do one with a drone. Check this out. It's one more sign of the current fascination with selfies and drones. The wrist-worn Nixie snagged the $500,000 top prize at Intel's Make It Wearables Challenge. Whenever you want to take an amazing shot, Nixie unfolds, the entire thing unfolds, and it flies to turn around, take a photo or video of you, and then comes back to you. The competition's sponsor, Intel, makes Edison, a tiny computer that powers wearables. Uh, my goal is to make it so small that it'll fit on a button in your shirt and last several days on a battery. So yes, you could soon take selfies to whole new heights. Move over selfie sticks. This one is going to be the new hot item. I mean, who wouldn't want a video selfie with a drone? It's awesome. In fact, speaking of awesome, uh, for all those adventurers out there who uh, have only in the past been able to tell a story about your crazy stunts, thanks to drones, you can now use them to record your whole trip, stunts and all, like this drone called Lily.
Okay, finally, somebody's gonna believe you about the fish you almost caught. Uh, you got it all on tape now, but if that selfie drone is still just a little too big for you, then wait no more. Uh, they just came out with a wallet drone, and it comes in multiple colors for you fashionistas out there. Check this one out. Hey, my name is Robert Morrison, and I am the founder of Axis Drones, and today I have with me the wallet drone. drone is the world's smallest quadcopter. It fits inside of the controller itself, which is the size of a wallet, fits perfectly into your pocket. does the quadcopter fit inside of the remote control, but it actually uses the remote control's batteries to charge itself while not in use, making it go virtually anywhere that you can. This is the most portable, compact quadcopter on the market. So uh, we've had probably about five or six different remote control planes, but the wallet drone uh, seems to last forever. I mean, it's the size, of the, the, the small size of it, but it flew longer than just about any other copter we've ever used. The Wallet Drone is available in four unique colors, blue, green, yellow, and orange. Get yours today on Indiegogo for a simple contribution, and we'll deliver one right to your pocket. Huh? Who wouldn't want to have one of those? It's cool, it's adventurous, but, uh, but maybe someday we can do both. Not only use a cool drone to record our adventures, but use that cool drone to become the adventure. How many of you guys remember those hover bikes that we saw in Star Wars in those movies? Well, Maybe soon, believe it or not, you can get one yourself. Let's take a look at this uh, technology. I see them. Wait, Leia! Hey, wait! Quick, jam their con like that a switch! Okay, now who wouldn't want to have one of those? Except for maybe that part where that one crashed, of course. Uh, but seriously, believe it or not, thanks to the advancement in this drone technology, uh, your very own hoverbike might be a reality much sooner than you think. Let's take a look at that.
hoverbike is the result of years of research and development. We combined the freedom of a helicopter with the simplicity of a motorcycle to create the world's first hoverbike. Developing a hoverbike is expensive and challenging, and we need your support to make this a reality. The hoverbike flies like a helicopter, however it is rugged and easy to use. It represents a whole new way to fly. We created a one-third scale hoverbike drone to test a new quad aerodynamic concept. Our drone will allow you to see and feel just how it will be to fly the full-scale hoverbike and will help with raising the funds needed to bring the hoverbike to market. We have moved to a proven quadcopter design and this is what our second generation hoverbike looks like. Okay now that's pretty close to Star Wars, wow. Uh, uh, looks like these drones are going to be everywhere whether we want them or not, even as a mode of transportation as you saw. In fact, like it or not, drones are not only here to stay, but they become so popular that they have even launched International Drone Day. Check out this news broadcast. Well, they're not just for spying. Drones are everywhere and today is International Drone Day, a day of learning more about the capabilities of these machines. Scott Daniels joins us with how this day is bringing more drone action to Las Vegas. This is so cool, Sheree. We've seen stories good and bad about drones. International Drone Day is to clear up any rumors, meet the people flying these drones and see what they can actually do. The billion dollar drone industry is taking off. Las Vegas is one of five drone testing sites in the U.S. On March 14th, the Southwest Desert is the main stage of International Drone Day. Worldwide, I think we're going to have a couple thousand drones in the air. It's probably the most hobby drones and semi-commercial drones in the air on the planet at one time today. The day is to show that drones aren't just for spying, but have incredible capabilities. Some of those capabilities are making money. You see, the drone market is taking off so fast and getting so popular, and we're just seeing the beginning of it, that it's actually becoming a sure bet on the stock market. In fact, financial experts are now saying that the drone industry is the new hot commodity, and you better get in on this investment while the getting's good. Once a Morgan Stanley analyst, and now a rich source of material for people looking for charts, she's a venture capitalist at Kleiner Perkins. One of her 82 slides showed growth in drones. That is the subject of our single best chart day. We have Anders Core with us from Core it's Analytics. Up. One of the things, it's up, but here's one of the things that I noticed is it does look like growth in actual shipments is growing faster um, than the market size, which to me hints at the fact that drones are getting becoming more ubiquitous and a cheaper technology. One of the developments militarily over the last uh, three or four years has been that we're not the only ones with drones. Can I translate that for you? They're spreading like wildfire and you better get in on these investments because it's only going to go up from here. In fact, this invasion of drones is not only a huge business as you just saw, but we're still just scraping the surface of this total invasion. The second invasion of drones is in the media sector. Thanks to recent rulings by the FAA or the Federal Aviation Administration, drones are being given the green light to fly in the skies for all kinds of needs, even for the media. For instance, the Motion Picture Association of America has argued that drones are actually safer to use in urban areas than helicopters for their aerial shots, because they're obviously much smaller as well as much, much cheaper. 
Drones for them provide a much more economical option than the cost of renting and or buying a, a, a full-blown helicopter just to achieve some aerial footage. And frankly, these shots these drones are able to take from the air, they're not just good. Frankly, most of the time, uh, they're even better than traditional helicopter shots. Let's take a look at some of that footage. The FAA opened a new era in aviation in September, allowing six Hollywood filmmakers to fly drones on movie sets in the U.S., like they have overseas for movies like Skyfall. A decision that paved the way to more commercial drone flights in the United States. All right, let's see some horns. Let's do this.
So as you can see, no wonder Hollywood's itching to get their hands on this stuff. Uh, it's amazing, amazing wild shots. They're cheaper and easier, and it's about to revolutionize the way people present their movies. And, and that's why it not only makes sense if it's good for Hollywood, uh, then it's got to be just as good for the news media, right? Well, believe it or not, the news industry has also caught on to this drone technology uh, and is starting to provide their own revolution on how to report their news from an angle never heard of. Uh, not only do they no longer need to pay for a helicopter or helicopter pilot as well themselves, like Hollywood, but thanks to these drones, they can also get into places and get shots that helicopters just simply cannot. For instance, imagine not just taking a picture of a snowstorm or a deadly flood and, and then showing it on the TV screen, uh, or helicopter footage from way up high in the air, but imagine having live footage within inches or feet within an event with an angle never before obtained. It brings the news in a much more personal and surreal fashion. Let's take a look at some of these examples. Drones could soon be flying over our heads, bringing you an eye-in-the-sky view of major events. A Nevada company has the approval and is now preparing to launch. Already, we've seen hobbyists bring us amazing views of everything from historic events like the implosion of the Clarion back in February to fun displays like this coordinated Christmas light show shot from the sky so you can see numerous houses. Where I live is, is impassable. The plows haven't been able to uh, to go out. Um, there's uh, three and a half feet of snow right in the middle of the street, and outside of my house, there's also a tree down in the street. The snow took down a tree. So uh, usually it sounds very good to sending plows through, but it's been two days now, and we haven't seen one plow. Uh, so right now, literally, I cannot go anywhere. Uh, in a car. I could walk, but it's very tough walking uh, in waist-deep snow. The, uh, the one from yesterday, I sent that out during the storm to kind of get a, a view of what was going on in the neighborhood. Uh, some of my neighbors are out uh, already trying to get their uh, driveways clear, but they didn't have much luck. People in Western New York and Buffalo, uh, we go through this a lot. 
And uh, whereas yesterday's storm and uh, tomorrow's storm is a lot of snow, uh, we're pretty used to getting prepared for it, watching the weather, uh, stocking up on food, stocking up on cat food. Um, so uh, we're pretty used to it. And, uh, you know, the people of Buffalo are uh, very friendly people. We look out for each other, and that's what's going on. You see little little villages appearing, you know. You get out and get to know your neighbors a little bit more. And get some incredible shots for the news. That's not just surreal, as you saw, but that's going to radically revolutionize the news and how they bring it to us. You just can't get those shots with a helicopter, which means the news industry is about to radically change. In fact, the news industry is now calling up a fleet of reporter drones to be the ongoing eye in the sky, ready to report and record news events as they unfold like never before. And it's not just an American phenomenon, as we just saw. It's a global movement. Here's a BBC report showing their excitement over this new way to report the news. Let's take a look at that. This is Old Oak Common, which right now is a train depot in one of the most deprived parts of London. But if they build HS2, this whole area will be transformed. It will turn into one of the five busiest train stations in the whole country. You may not realize this, but what you've just seen is a little bit of BBC News history. It's not my performance, unfortunately. No, this is the first time a BBC News crew has used one of these. We get all the glamorous locations, and this is Hexacopter, okay, our new toy. Six rotors, and there's a little camera on a gimbal down there so it doesn't wobble around. And Rianne here is just changing the battery. We're going to call this Alan, our new cameraman. And here's the team that run it, and built it in fact, Rhiannon and Owen from the BBC's Global Video Unit. You might have guessed we've moved locations to a farm in Cheshire. Owen spent six months training before he was allowed to take the controls today. He's now got a special licence, and this is what he can do. No helicopter or camera crew can get these unique, fantastic shots. It is absolutely sensational. I mean, I just thought the pictures were marvellous. And uh, uh, the statue, the most famous kind of landmark of Brazil, the shot is incredibly steady. How difficult is it to achieve that? Well, it's, um, the technology's really leapt on recently, so it means that there's a platform that the camera is mounted on which essentially is stabilised in real time, so if there's gusts of wind or unexpected turbulence up there, and it was very turbulent up there, um, it, it compensates for those moves and gives you those very smooth shots. And how difficult is it to fly? So, how, how, is, are you operating both the camera and the hexacopter? Well, I work with one of my other camera uh, persons or colleagues, um, and one person is controlling that mount, that gimbal on the bottom of the uh, helicopter, and I'm essentially flying the move. And we, we rehearse it beforehand, and we decide what we're going to do uh, first. And then it's essentially like, you know, we're both sort of um, 
have to contribute to making those kind of shots. So I place the copter in the sky in the place where the camera operator wants it to be, and then we sort of both work at the same time. And presumably, as well as the camera and the hexacopter, you are getting a signal of the pictures so on a, on a yeah. monitor in front of you, so you can, otherwise you don't know where you're steering Yeah, it. exactly. So to get those, the, the shot of the, the Christ shot there, it was um, obviously, you know, you need to keep your framing quite specific. Um, and so the camera operator has a downlink coming from that copter and they can see what's going on and they can make those adjustments to the camera so we swing around uh, the, the statue. It gives us a completely different perspective. I mean, sometimes when you watch football matches and the, the big stadiums now, they've got a camera on a wire that goes across the stadium. Yeah. But the kind of swooping shots and rising, mm. I thought at times I was actually watching a video game yeah. that had been designed in someone's mind and that yeah. these weren't real pictures. Yeah, and as a camera man, you know, I sort of get very excited about being able to show the images and give the audience a different perspective that they might not have seen before. So, you know, when all this copter stuff started, I got very excited and um, essentially it's really great because it allows us to go very low um, and then have in one shot go very high uh, and you see that progression in a way that you, you couldn't do it in any other way. This machine is going to transform the way TV news looks in the future. Which means it's here to stay and we're just seeing the beginning of it. Now notice how the one drone pilot mentioned how it took two operators to get those kind of amazing shots. One to fly the drone, the other two operate the camera. But this revolution has taken off so fast, and that's no longer the case. It's no longer needed. The next generation of media drones are already here, and they offer many automated features with the push of a button. One person can now get these kind of shots all by themselves. Here's just one of those automated drones called the Solo. Solo is the ultimate tool for aerial video and photography. Whether you're a first-time pilot or a long-time pro, Solo is the most powerful and easiest to use drone on the market. Solo is designed from the ground up to give you the best overall aerial experience imaginable. Solo pairs smooth flying characteristics with powerful features, making it easy for you to get great professional shots from day one. CableCam allows you to lock Solo on a virtual cable between any two points in the air so you can focus on camera work. Pan and tilt the camera freely without needing to keep track of the direction of the copter. Solo can even memorize your framing at each end of the cable, then smoothly shift your camera between the two points, easing into and out of the moves like a seasoned professional. These features are made possible by Solo's two onboard computers, which enable radical breakthroughs in both flight and camera control. This makes Solo the world's first smart drone. By harnessing the power of these computers, even brand new pilots have the ability to capture beautiful cinematic shots that would otherwise require years of practice. The included mobile app gives you a beautiful live view from your GoPro, easy access to Solo's exclusive shot modes, and even helps you learn how to fly with a built-in flight trainer. We've worked closely with GoPro to make Solo the world's first drone to give you full control of your GoPro through both our mobile app as well as dedicated buttons on Solo's controller. This controller was designed from the ground up to give you an unrivaled aerial photography experience. Its gaming controller-inspired ergonomics will feel familiar even to brand new pilots 
It also has its own built-in computer, putting control of both the vehicle and the camera at your fingertips. All of these features are seamlessly integrated into a simple, all-in-one system, giving you the power to easily capture amazing aerial photography. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you're enjoying our documentary. But uh, before you go, let me ask you a couple questions. Did you know the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? Holy means without sin. God is without sin. The problem is we have sin. We've done some things that are wrong. And the problem with this is the Bible says that the wages of our sin is death. In other words, we, need to, we deserve to die and be separated from God forever in a place called hell. And that's the ultimate question. If you were to die today, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? Well, unless you deal with the sin issue, the Bible's very clear. We're not going to go up. We're going to go down. And that's what I wanted to share with you today. Uh, God wants to fix this for us. He's made a provision uh, so that we could escape hell and go to heaven through his son, Jesus Christ. But we don't want to admit it. And so out of love, he sent us something called the Ten Commandments. It's his way to give us an x-ray so that we can admit we got a problem, that we have sin inside that separates us from him. And if we would just admit it and ask for his help, he'll fix it. But let's take a look at his divine x-ray. The Bible says in the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment says, uh, if you will, you think you're good enough to get to heaven, you're holy like God, you're without sin, uh, then prove it to God. Don't ever bear false witness. That's the Ninth Commandment, which means lying. So how many guys have ever told a lie ever once in your life? Well, every single one of you should have raised your hand because we all have. Believe it or not, that disqualifies you right there for heaven. The Bible also says you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. Folks, if we're honest, we've done that too. The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. You shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And now the blessed name of Jesus Christ has become a common cuss word. That's called the sin of blasphemy. The Bible also says you shall not commit adultery. You think you're worthy of getting to heaven? Just march on in there yourself, all by yourself? You don't need God's help? Then don't ever commit adultery. And Jesus said his standards is this. If you ever look at lust with your eye at another person, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, I haven't done that one. Really? Once again, here's the Bible standard. Jesus said that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, is akin to the sin of murder. You just, if you will, pulled the trigger in your heart. But that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You're going to stand before God one day, and you're going to have to admit who you are. He already knows, but you're going to have to admit, hey, God, let me in. Let me into heaven. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, murderer, and the Bible is very clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You're not going to heaven. You're going to hell. But here's the good news. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you and I. He took the death penalty in our place. Jesus lived the perfect life in our place, and he took our punishment on the cross so that we could be forgiven and set free. It's called a pardon. God wants to pardon you. But that pardon will do you no good unless you reach out and receive it. Won't you do that today? Won't you do that right now? You don't even know if you have tomorrow. You may not even make it through the rest of this documentary. Don't leave this earth without Jesus being your Lord and Savior. Call upon his name. Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And the Bible says you shall be saved. Well, this is Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries. And again, I hope you're enjoying our documentary. But please make sure that you're headed to heaven today.
I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.